Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tunya, I'm the producer with our host Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hey, Outgrind listeners, I am absolutely delighted to share this interview with Justin Mortimer with you. Years ago, when we started this podcast in Marshall's living room, I had no idea that we would get the opportunity to interview our artist heroes, but here we are. If you're not familiar with Justin's artwork, he's well known for his distinctive, dark, and shocking imagery, which he handles with extreme mastery. His style has influenced many well-known artists since the early 2000s, and he continues to delight us with his colorful palette and complex compositions. I can go on, but I'm just going to stop now. So without further ado, here's Justin Mortimer. Yeah, and I'm very happy to do it with you guys, and thank you very much for asking. It's a... It's, it's, it's an honor. Yeah, it's an honor. Well, it's an honor for me because uh, your book, actually, this one here from uh, the Haunch of Venison show. You've got that one. Congratulations. Yes. That's brilliant. <laughs> this stayed in oh, my locker great. at a school I teach at for probably five years because I show it to students yeah. all the time. You've been a big influence for me, for sure. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, that was from 2012. Was it, I was trying to remember. Yeah. That, that feels longer than I would have guessed. I was like, I bet it was 2015, but 2012, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it they're was, out of print too, right? They are. I, I think I've got the world's only supply of them um, on really? my shelf. Yeah. Huh. Just behind my laptop, I've got about 20 of them on my, wow. <laughs> on my bookshelf. Ooh. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I mean, another testament to what a fan I am, like... I went to that show, I was in art school, and the money to buy that book was no small deal, you know? I was like, but I had to um, get it. I was like, I want to remember. I'm sorry, I'm sorry you had to pay so much for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying, I'm saying <laughs> um, it was worth the sacrifice. Hey, Mar- to, uh, Marshall, yeah. way, to, way to make make uh, make our guest feel guilty before you begin. <laughs> Listen, that wasn't my intent. I was saying I'm such a fan that it was worth the, worth the sacrifice. Um, because that's what, but by the way, Justin, that's what we want all of our guests to walk away from this interview with, uh, just a little bit of guilt for, you know, you know the, the, Yeah, that's uh, cool. I'm English. I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, um, so, so by, I was actually going to say is being described as a blokey painter, kind of a, is that a legit British criticism of, you know, is it, is it criticism? Is it a compliment to the, uh, no, it's definitely not a compliment. Um, in fact, I think it was a student, I was giving a talk about, about the same time as when I did the exhibition for that book that Marshall was talking about. Uh, I did a talk and, uh, and some students were commenting on the fact that I hadn't up until then painted many women. And I think that was a valid point, actually. So I, I addressed that uh, a couple of, over the next couple of years. Um, and I think people thought my work was quite macho looking in the... I, I don't really know why. Well... I don't intend to make the work look like that. It, it, maybe it's just the, the darkness, perhaps the scale, um, the physicality of the form. I don't know. I don't know. But it's not something I tend to what dwell you, too much on. You know? Dwell too much on how your work is received? How, the, how people... Oh, well, and, um, oh no. Well, I'm, I, I'm as much uh, as interested in that as any other artist, really. But I, 
I've learned not to listen too much about too much to it uh, because one has to um, forge one's own furrow, really, I, which is something I've done all my life. I've always been a kind of an outsider. And I, from it being a position of difficulty, I've now found it a real boon to my life. And to, it's something I really try hard to do and to, to maintain that one's own integrity, just completely outside of what other people say or expect from painting now. Um, I just have to do what I do. Well, yeah. And that's it. I'm struck by things in your, in your history. Like you came up at a time of like the YBAs and you were this very figurative painter that was not in vogue at that time. And you you went to Slade school, right? I did. I went to the Slade as as a very young man, really. In fact, I was basically still a child. I was only 18. Oh, and wow. uh, I went into an undergraduate degree there for four years straight from school. And um, I, I, I did, I certainly found it quite tricky, but we can talk about that later on. But, at the t- but when we left our year in 1992, the environment for figurative painting was absolutely zilch, I suppose. Uh, like Colleen Barry was talking about, there was Jenny Savile was on the scene. Um, she was being promoted by Sarch at the time, and that was, she was kind of a heroine to a lot of people. Um, and... Uh, and painting was being exemplified by painters like Gary Hume and Fiona Ray and people like that. And uh, so I think a lot of us felt quite marginalised at the time. And certainly when I was 22 and I left college, the way I had to survive and not think too much about the scene and being part of the scene. I mean, I didn't really have that much ambition to be part of the great trendy scene at the time, if you like. I just needed to survive. And the way I survived was just to embrace portraiture as a job. And I maintained that for about for about eight years. No, probably longer, actually. Um, yeah, anyway, it doesn't really matter. A couple of decades. And it, it was very, very good. You know, a lot of us came, came out of the Slade. And uh, quite a lot of figure painters did that. We were um, supported through things like the National Portrait Gallery competitions, the BP Portrait Award, all that kind of thing. And a lot of, a lot of my peer group did actually win the prize in that. And through that, you get a, get a commission to paint someone for this national collection of famous British people. And I, I was, came straight out of college and was given the prize and my commission was to paint um, the playwright Harold Pinter, which was just fabulous because I got to meet the guy and spend a lot of time with him in his study. And uh, in fact, I think I, I won the BP in 91. So I was still at college. So I'd, I'd bunk off college, get on the tube with my palace and paint box and uh, get off at Holland Park and go and see him and spend the day with him. And he said, Justin, now we're going off to the pub. And he did feed me white wine and things like that. And uh, <laughs> it was good. It was good. I, mean, I didn't know what he looked like, but I remember I answered, he opened the door to me and there was me in a leather jacket and a black roller neck. And he was wearing exactly the same. I thought, right, we're going to get on. And we did. And he was <laughs> a very, very good supportive figure to me and he came to my degree show. And, yeah, it was fabulous. I spent time time with him. It was when I was still painting from life. Was a, he was a terrific I, I, man. And I, I, I still mourn his loss, really. Yeah. I like those early portraits, like of him and the queen that you did. How do you cool. feel about those looking back? I'm very proud of them. You know, I'm very proud of them. Not all of I mean, Everyone feels slightly strange about their, their younger work. I mean, the, the queen I made when I was about 27. Um, Pinto, I was 21, 22, um, and various other famous people like Bowie and people like that. I was in my mid-twenties. 
And but it was kind of it kind of came with the territory. It's what you did as a portrait painter. You 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 one one of the joys of it was meeting famous people and getting to know them a little bit and getting some sort of vicarious thrill from that. Um, I mean the Queen thing. I'm still very proud of that painting, as I am with the Pinter one, because I feel it exemplifies everything I was doing at the time. It feels very honest to me still. It was a way of dealing with a gig that was extremely loaded. I knew people would have an opinion about it and you'd be lambasted in the, in the tabloids and things like that, which I was, which is absolutely terrific. I've got a fantastic scrapbook full of just the most hilarious Stupid artist cuts off Queen said, it's an outrage, all that, you can imagine, all that kind of stuff, from all over, all over the world. Anyway, um, so the only way I could deal with painting the Queen was to um, paint her in the context of the work I was making at the time, which was these disassociated, dismembered kind of forms, um, still really rendered faces and things, but I was very much dealing with the abstract and flat colour fields and that kind of thing then. And a lot of the work I was doing at the time, which... I'm less interested in now, but I can see that it fits in with that. And I'm proud of, proud of that person who I was then, and I managed to just stay true and not do something that was sycophantic or, uh, or playing to the gallery, but what I was interested in, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. And there's a bit more interest in painting now as the Queen ages and things like that. I get the occasional phone call from journalists who are starting to readdress and... Um, Look at, look at these paintings again, you know. And that, that painting starting to emerge as quite an interesting portrait from that time, which I'm very pleased about. Justin, before we get to you in your 20s, uh, how did you wind up at Slade anyway? Like, like the, um, Sorry, how did I wind up with what? Sorry. Were you one of the kids who drew all the time and you kind of knew what you wanted? Or did life just sort of land you in art school and then you took it from there? No, I was... I was the kind of child that drew all the time. I mean, I was, from the earliest age, I drew all the time, like all children do. But I think, uh, I remember being about nine, eight or nine, where I realised I could draw better than anyone I knew at school. And then I could, then by about the age of 10, I started to invent my own worlds with drawing. You know, I'm, I'm on the carpet at home, you know, like kids do, with their felt pens and things. And I suddenly realised I could actually invent scenes just like the comics I was reading. So it was, those days, it was all 2001 and Star Wars and all that kind of stuff. And I managed to be able to draw cartoons with, that, that felt as if there was form and, and a, a story was going on. I, I felt like it was a kind of a welling superpower within me. It was quite quite amazing feeling. I remember it very strongly and I've never really ever got that feeling back again. Then it all kind of got quite... Well, much later on, it became quite um, loaded, but I suppose by the age of... Well, when I was 11, I was sent to a boarding school, which uh, was a really troubling aspect, part of my life, really. And as a lot of artists, I suppose I, I inhabited... I had to inhabit my own private world through drawing. Otherwise, I'd have just crumbled under the, under the regime, if you like. And so... Um, I drew and drew, and then by the time I was about 13, I think an art teacher at the school, Mrs. Sue McDougall, who I owe a lot, and a lot of other people do too, um, kind of took me under her wing. And this is a school where I was, I was away from home for at least three weeks at a time. So I was, you know, it's homesick, it's bullying, and it's just random acts of violence like all schools, you know, but you could never get away. You could never go to your own 
bedroom or anything like that, like normal kids did. So you're, you're stuck in this very sort of public, sort of brutal place. And um, drawing was where I found I could be someone, or where I could be someone. So anyway, this art teacher, Sue, she, she sort of started to take me under her wing and became a kind of a mentor figure. Uh, because I was boarding, I was able to um, sneak off to her house up the road where I should, when I should have been doing sports and games and things. And she would set up life classes for myself and maybe some of her friends. We were able to participate in really kind of rigorous drawing classes and um, life classes and things that I hadn't ever been exposed to. I think she took me to my first life class when I was... 13. That, that, and I remember the model, I remember the model's name, he was called Wally, he was an athletic kind of diver, so he, was, he looked like he had no subcutaneous fat at all, and I remember trying to work out how to, how to hang a line off his body, I had no idea, there was nothing there. I mean, okay, there might have been edges between muscles and things, but there, were no, there, were no, there was no collar, there was no belt, there was no shoe, there was nothing. I had to find out how to, how to explore the space of this living naked man. It was something I never forgot. So suddenly I was, I'd gone from imagining my own place, a place of solace and security, through, through the, the very real needs one had, just, my own, so call it just for my own mental well-being. And uh, of course I didn't really know this at the time. And then suddenly I was having to make art, and that, that was quite a big deal. And it was kind of stressful, but wonderful all at the same time. And I think that was the first time I really identified myself as a, an artist. I just drew. And I'm still teaching myself to paint. I don't think I seriously painted. I mean, I was painting from the age of probably eight, but the actual proper oil painting I did first time round was, I imagine, it was around um, 13, 14, something like that. And yeah, and so she just pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and gave me lots of wise words about not getting slick um, because I found things easy sometimes. Um, she, would, she would say, right, we're now going to look at Suzanne as her hero. And so out came Suzanne. So I think for years I just painted in ochres and Prussian blue, you know, I was really <laughs> under his influence, you know. And um, she had all these other books about art I wasn't allowed to turn into and it was basically all this kind of uh, illustration from the sort of gothic fantasy art. She, she was really worried that I'd turn into one of these kind of people because I, I really loved drawing dragons and yeah so, so, so she just pushed me, pushed me, pushed me and my, my, um, my ambition grew as I felt this kind of artistic sort of strength grow within me and I suppose because I was in such a hothouse environment um, there wasn't, I never really questioned that I wouldn't be able to get to art school. So I applied to the Slate and I got in. And from that point, I found it um, pretty difficult. Uh, I mean, you've got to imagine, I came from a boarding school in a backwater of the southwest of England. And, uh, and suddenly I'm in the metropolis with people from all over the world. Great range of ideas and thoughts. And that's exactly why I should have gone to the Slate. That reason was you and Uglo teaching there at the time. He was, yeah, yeah. That was an interesting time. He did a thing called um, the F Studio every Friday. He he would come into the Life Studio because in those days, 
you could still go into a studio that was dedicated purely for life painting. So you'd go in, there'd just be a naked person in, in a room which you could just use for the day. It was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's not like that now, I can tell you. And um, Ewan would come in on a Friday, Friday afternoon, and when the, when the lights had gone, about 3.30 in the studio, out would come the cigars, the olives, all this kind of stuff. And he would sit there and ponder and look at your paintings. I think he said about three words to me in his entire life. You know, he was a, I, I never really got his work at the time. I adore it now. The time I was 18, when I was painting from life, I wanted to paint about the sensuality, the living, breathing person. I, I wasn't interested in just this very cool, distant, spatial thing, you know, which was his shtick. And so I kind of rejected it. I'd go into the life room and just paint this mad Fauvist paintings of yellows and pinks and greens. And I don't think he, I don't think he was his cup of tea. And uh, I see him again now and again, but... Yeah, I'm more interested in now than I was at the time, as is always the way. Yeah. You don't know what's good until it's gone. So you said something really interesting earlier about being a kid and feeling like these powers working through you, maybe. That's a way to say it. But you haven't felt in touch with that again. What is that? What do you think that is? Uh, I think it's maybe it's the sort of the bane of knowledge, really. Um, working every day, maybe lots of artists have said this to you, but I certainly know that the more I work, you're kind of chasing this thing. And, and the, the more tenuous it gets, it's getting further and further away. The faster you run, it's getting further and further. To, to get back to that kind of magic, um, that, that ignorance is bliss thing, is, I'm not searching for that now, but I just remember that, the one, how wonderful that was, that feeling. Absolutely. And I think that's probably why I still paint like I do, because I, I still want to make pictures of, of something that engages me. It takes me somewhere outside of the prosaic. It takes me somewhere else. There's, there's, there's another narrative somewhere. Maybe I, maybe I could have made films in another, another world, or um, I always wanted to make models. And in fact, I still do occasionally. And, uh, and I think a lot of my... Um, you know, I fancied being the guy who made um, dioramas or models for, for special effects for films and things like that. I never did, but um, and I think that's kind of what I do now. I'm creating something that comes out of my imagination. And it's, it, 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 it continually draws me in, even at the age of 51. I still get up every day and, and continue to well, chase that, you know. I think that's what is so striking about your work, and it's something that I've been thinking about a good bit because the spaces that you paint, or we could say my more pretentious way, like the, the world you're building or something, are right. very conceivable, but the elements are very disparate. So they exist. I, I wonder what the conceivability is. It's almost like it has to tap into some memory bank of your viewer, something within that that's never been seen before, but there's a feeling to it that's it's almost like the intangibles what makes it plausible, even though the elements are so disparate and bizarre, you know? I find that so fat. Uh, almost like it's difficult to put a point on what you're doing in that space, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a mystery to me as well, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, it is, it's intuitive for me. I spend a lot of time thinking about how to put things together compositionally. Um, but as for what world I create, it kind of controls me in a way. And I, I, I tend to go with it and see what comes out the other end. And what seems to emerge is this other world. 
Um, I don't think of my paintings like that so much, but it's, a, it's a, I suppose it is a, a kind of alternative reality. It's based on um, observational painting, um, but there's a lot of imagination going in there. And the conflict between painting realistically and intuitively and the abstract and the freedoms inherent in painting, an abstract sensibility, that kind of conflict is something I tend to um, meander along that edge. You know, I, I negotiate that thing in a real place, something you can kind of find as tangible and something that is, well, where the narrative is more opaque maybe, you know. So maybe my pictures are, are more suggestions um, or ciphers for something. Do you remember the kind of painter that you wanted to be? We all have that thing in our head. Yeah. Like, when I figure this out, I'm going to be this kind of painter. Do you remember what that was? Um, no, I never had a kind of a fantasy sort of artistic figure in mind. I can tell you who I was really into when I was, say, 15. I remember just being at school and I had a book on Degas and just looking at his laundrette paintings and his milliner paintings and just looking at the mystery of how this most extraordinary passage of painting had been made. I didn't know about any painting techniques then, but I, and I just adored the way this, the way he'd painted say, a green ribbon and the summation of something so complex and the shimmering silk into just this flat, complex, crusted, sort of off green band. I just remember looking at that and looking at that thinking, I would love, I would love to be able to paint like that, you know? And I suppose if I ever was said I was chasing something, I think if I could um, paint anywhere as close as to say someone like Degas, I'd be abs that That's the sort of the dream, you know, that, that's as close as I wanted to be. <laughs> so how did you get from, you know, you graduate, you end up being a portrait painter and mm -hmm. what happens next? Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm not quite sure what happened there. I think, um, I think because I was painting portraits and making a decent living out of it to the point is where I, where I could pay rent for the flat and rent pay for home and pay for a separate studio and a separate thing which I've always done I've always worked away from home if I was able to do that and then if I had a bit of time available from that I would paint my own paintings um, and these started to emerge as these figures and landscapes most simple sense and I'm trying to think how people started, because this is before the internet really, really took off. And I suppose it wasn't until about 2004 where I entered an international exhibition called East International that was held in Norwich, a town in England. And it was curated by um, Neo Rauch, the German painter from Leipzig, and his, um, his dealer, Judy Lubke from Eigenart. And uh, they curated this show, and there were artists from Canada, from America, from Germany, from all around the world. All of us exhibited in that. And um, anyway, Neil Rauch chose me as the winner, which was absolutely amazing, because I only entered this show because he was the curator. And I thought, wow, I, I adore his painting. And, um, and he was very generous, and um, in his shy, gentlemanly manner, just said, Justin, your paintings have a very strange perfume. Mm. And I've never, never forgotten that, really. And uh, <laughs> he doesn't answer my calls now. <laughs> I write some things. You know, I'd love to see him. I see him at the odd art fair and stuff. I don't go and say hello. But it was just really great the way it, I suddenly felt um, that this other work I was doing was valid. But also, really importantly, 
Theo Rauch was also very, was deeply interested in the fact that I was a portrait painter. And so from, at the time, I was trying to reject that world. And he said, no, we, we love the fact that you're doing that. And I was still painting portraits for money then. And, uh, and so that validation from figures such as that was, was really important. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was food, you know, it kept me going, kept me going. So I had that kind of encouragement. And I think possibly from that show, uh, maybe a, I think a gallery in France started to show my work for a bit. And then uh, um, and I was already had a little gallery in London I was working with. And um, yeah, it kind of grew bit by bit, you know, from that point. It's really interesting you said perfume. I'm just wondering now, like, what would your yes. painting smell like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, of, of course, I, I stink of white spirit and turps and stuff all the time, you know. Um, but yeah, I love that. I love that word he chose. And because his English wasn't fantastic. So for him to choose that word, I thought was rather pertinent. And um, I've never forgotten it. And it's something I, I think about a lot. Uh, and maybe that's just magic of painting really i mean it makes me think i should just simplify everything just by painting even an old sock or a piece of cellophane on a table if you can imbue that strange perfume i think you've um succeeded really well that leads me to a question i have written down what is it what is that strange perfume in your work because i think of like when I hear that, I think of the one that's like the snow mound in the middle of the in the middle of the picture, you know, or or oh, the yeah. flash photography yeah. cellophane where the flowers are there. There's something like withholding of, to the viewer in your work. Yes. It is, yeah, it's beautiful. It's frustrating. In in mm. your words, what do you think the strange perfume is that you paint with? I'm, I'm really interested that you picked up on this kind of frustration and um, this, this, like a sort of obfuscation of the images. It's, I think sometimes I set up this, this sense of distance, perhaps. Um, and it's not intentional hmm. at all. It's just, it just seems to happen like that. And maybe this is the strangeness, complexities of just rendering stuff and different surfaces and things like that. And perhaps sometimes it's, it's quite easy for a narrative to kind of get dissipated somewhat and you have to really you know we're all artists here talking and you all know what it's like to really search and, and break through just the sheer technical issues of dealing with this strange muddy paste that we call paint and, and pull something out of that you know and when when we've got an image cluttered with lots of recognizable visual ephemera or objects and things it's quite hard to choreograph something and pull, extrapolate something from that, you know. Justin, what kind of books do you read? Looking at, at your paintings a while ago, it's like, you know, he must like, you know, Camus or Sartre, or, you know, like, you, you actually, or am I just getting it completely wrong? No, sure, of course, of course I've read things like La Peste and things like that, and, you know, uh, uh, all this sort of stuff. But, and also thinking about um, kind of distant narratives and um, a, a slightly opaque way of, thinking. Uh, I've been listening and reading. I say listening, so when I paint, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. But I also, I mean, I've been reading Ballard for a long time. Um, I wouldn't say he's somebody that I would sit down and read them writing on the tube, but I'd read someone like, Pat, um, well, I don't know, what am I reading at the moment? In fact, I'm reading 
American writer, his name I forget right now, about in the Deep South. Anyway, uh, yeah, but Ballard's certainly been quite an influence on me, and he's not someone who presents a character that you can really engage with. The, the, the protagonist is often just a, um, a surname, and it's all about the psychosis and the, the landscape as, as, as an interior world, externalised, all that kind of thing. And I think that there is a correlation with my work there, uh, this kind of slight depersonalization or distancing, if you like. And with Ballard, like, he's also one of my favorite writers. And it, oh, right, okay. Maladies are, are so uh, upfront with him and what fetishes coming out of maladies and things like in Crash and stuff that, that I, I wonder if some sure. of that is in your work too. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, when I, when, I, when I think about Ballard, it's all the tropes of the 20th century, and it totally is the man that he, that he inhabited, the, the century that he inhabited it. It's the grassy knoll. It's Marilyn Monroe. It's Cadillacs. It's shiny chrome. You know, um, it's, it's death camps. It's Japanese prisoners of war camps. It's all that kind of thing. It's, I've ser- I haven't really experienced those kind of things myself, but I've certainly uh, tried to engage with things that make me very scared and worried and... Um, things, a lot of my paintings that came through in the 2012 book you've got and stuff like that came from me cleaning my brushes on a stack of old newspapers that I suddenly realised I was wiping my brushes on images from the Bosnian War. Um, and I thought, Jesus Christ, look at this. And uh, I, I suddenly, it brought me up short, you know. And, um, you know, I was a kid brought up on war comics. Uh, we all watched war films. All that kind of all that kind of stuff that you're fed, uh, that kind of propaganda we all had I mean, in the eighties and seventies and nineties, you know, all the Vietnam films. I thought, and we're, it, it was always somewhere else. It was always distance. It was always a foreign land. Mm. And I saw this picture of the Bosnian War. It was a picture in Srebrenica, I think. And um, I thought, this is on my doorstep. This is a few hundred miles away from London. This is a reality, and this is way before internet and malignant algorithms and ending of democracy and that kind of stuff that we're discussing now. It was just visceral fear, and I thought that is tapping into something that I can that I really recognise. And um, I think uh, a friend of mine just said, "Just paint what you're scared of." So I thought, hmm. "Oh wow, all right." <laughs> And I, yeah, I kind of went there. And I think now the work isn't so literal. And I'm not referencing stuff, but maybe there is that kind of stain, that perfume remains, you know, in, in where I'm going now. You know, I discovered your work around 2008 or nine, And okay. I remember one of the paintings that really stood out was uh, Depot. It was just like a oh, stack yeah. of bodies, and yeah, that hit that me was, hard. Yes, because yes, that was a really violent painting. But if anybody mm. else had tried to do the same imagery, they would have messed it up. Like it's so difficult to balance um, something painting something violent with something turning to illustration-y or too corny. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was really on the fine line, that that series of paintings. I mean, they were quite an important series of paintings. I did a whole show for that. 
in that vein. And technically it was different. I was working on wooden panels, very small as well. And so I had to invent a whole new way of working, um, working with the white uh, primer using quite transparent colour and very small brushes. So it was all down to just where a tiny hair could suggest this or could suggest that, you know? It was all that. And, uh, and collecting imagery off the internet of... Um, what was it now? They, they weren't of... They, they, they looked like death camp imagery, but they weren't. It was from um, organ. It was, it was going back into the backs of hospitals and things like that for cadavers and things. But of course, cadavers was something that I was looking at as an art student. I mean, I did a lot of drawings from cadavers and it was going back to that um, and the memories of that. But also then injecting into that the fear of fascism and um, nationalism, which I was witnessing at the time. Those paintings came yeah. from that. Yeah, and I think it's still the violence in the paintings still showed through, but just not as literal anymore. I think the way you handle the paint and the way the backgrounds are treated, I think there's still a sense of it that's been pretty consistent throughout your series, at least to me. Okay. Yeah. Which, which I find fascinating. I think it's really great. No, well, fair enough. It is there. And there's no bones about it. It's, um, it's kind of where I am. I mean, I've spent the past few days just trying to paint a, a moldy old foot coming out of a kind of a bed in a painting that's just behind me. You can see in them. And I'm not sure where, where the, those images are coming from. Um, I'm just allowing myself to go there and see what comes out at the end. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subject I keep returning to. So there must be some resonance going on, but I, I don't know. You don't want to be my shrink, really. It's uh, what's going on. <laughs> yeah. How are, you, how are you able to tap into the dark recess of your psyche so well? And like yeah, well, I've been there, you know. Out. I've been there. I've been there. And um, in my 30s, I went there, and it took about five years to get out. And um, I'm fine now, but occasionally I... I get a whiff, trap door opens, I, I can see it and I can close the trap door again and I know how to walk away. But at the time I was in the grip of it and it was extremely frightening. Um, and I think a lot of artistic people can go there and it's part of, it's part of our psyche. And uh, luckily for me, it didn't take over me, but it certainly was an important part of my life. And I, I'm happy to talk about it because I think it's quite important. And a lot of, lot of young men I was at college with didn't survive. They, they you know, so, what, yeah. What did those times look like for you, uh, did, you know, just on a daily level? Were you working or were you, you know? I was walking the streets quite a lot of London. I remember just disassociative state, just sitting in cafes on Regent Street, just watching the traffic. Um, and it all started with a panic attack in my studio and I didn't know what it was. Now I do and I'm able to help people who, who feel like that now. Um, people, I know what a panic attack is. I know it's a fully functioning. <laughs> it's completely fine, um, but it isn't if you don't know what's going on. So, um, yeah. Do you think we're meant, I, I mean, this is, um, 
kind of a debate that I was having with someone recently. So that, you know, we're not supposed to feel these things, you know, the, the fear, anxiety, like, you know, like, like talked about it as if it was an illness and, you know, in its extreme case it is. But do you think we're just meant to have periods of joy or euphoria or finding life meaningful? We're maybe also meant to have periods of anxiety, not being able to concentrate, uh, fear. Like we're meant to see the dark side and that's just part, part of us. If you, uh, if you had a choice, uh, would you want to know what's behind that door or just keep it shut forever? Oh, well, no, of course, everyone's going to op- try to open that door, aren't they? They're going to want to have a Yeah. I mean, I know, yeah. I know that um, the dark side is just part, part of it and it's part of a fully functioning human psyche and it's there in all of us. And um, oh, um, I'm happy to embrace it occasionally, but I, I, I'm not a depressed person. I'm... I'm now I'm usually a man of levity quite often, you know. Um, but I think, um, you know, my paintings aren't me, but I think they have allowed, I've allowed to access a part of me. These paintings do show some parts of me, but not all of me. I think um, that would be fair to say. Uh, yeah. And I always find that you know, people that have gone through like some serious things have a tendency to paint things that are more authentic. Whereas I know some other painters tend to lean heavily on the more conceptual things. And then the result ends up being more stylistic. Whereas your work, like I can sense that there's something deep there. Okay. Yeah, people ask me often, um, what what was it that made you sort of work like this, you know? And uh, maybe I've answered it a little bit. Uh, and I think it was um, also just as a, as a kid, just seeing a lot of very ill children in hospitals as a child. I mean, I, I wasn't that ill, but I had a condition which meant I had to be in hospital a lot during my, during my childhood and youth. And uh, I would be an outpatient hospital and I would see children with just the most extraordinary problems, um, exoskeletons holding their bodies together. Um, I remember seeing children with kind of frames holding their head, head straight. Um, I've got a memory of them buying ice cream from an ice cream van in a square in, behind London's Great Ormond Street Hospital. And, um, and, or, a, or a blind child being read the football results by his mother. And so from a very, very early age, I was really aware about how our bodies can fail. And I also, and also I became very aware of my body and other people's bodies. And it was something I wanted to really explore in my drawings. I was always drawing people. I would, um, I would draw from life. I had sketchbooks in my pocket all the time. I drew everything. I mean, if I was 16 now and you're interviewing me, I'd be drawing your portraits as I was talking to you. You know, everything, everything was valid. And it's, uh, so there's that kind of bedded down deep inside me, but there's also just a real love of just observation and continual looking and looking and thinking and just, I mean, it's brilliant being artists, isn't it? I mean, it's, the world is just so interesting if you're visually literate. It's just a terrific thing. It's, it's, you are never bored because everything is so interesting around you. It could be the most banal thing. 
And yet it is fascinating and interesting. Where, wherever you look, find an essence of or just a shape of a shadow or a conjunction of just two shapes, just endless. So yeah, there's that as well. That feeling of everything being valid, like when you talked earlier about having superpowers, um, that like... <laughs> That's going to haunt me now, isn't it? N- uh, <laughs> no, 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 because I think we've all felt it and, you know, we, we felt it Great. come and go, the, right? You just right. Words, something that everyone has, and, and and maybe that's why people start painting, start drawing, like that that feeling, and you know, mm. and lose it, and then maybe if you're lucky, you find it again for five minutes. But I've had moments in my life where I, I'm just glued to my sketchbook, and um, right. like after a few days, like it doesn't happen right away, but maybe after a week of drawing all the time, you get that, like everything is valid, everything has magic, everything is worthwhile. And then, you know, I've also felt the opposite of that at various points in my life. But um, do you remember, or do you, st- do you still keep them? Or do, do you remember that feeling of having a sketchbook on you all the time where you can constantly, oh, yeah. you know, a cigarette butt in the ground and you're like, oh my God, that's interesting too. Yeah, it became, it became, a, bit, I was, it became a bit self-conscious though. I have, I have to admit, as a young teenager with my sketchbook, I've, you know, I'd be kind of quite proud of my little um, portfolio under my arm or something, you know, so... So, yeah, I can imagine having the piss taken out of me something chronic for, for being this kind of uppity young artist type person. That, but, yeah, I, the sketchbook was always there and it was very embarrassing to other people because I was constantly drawing in their faces. And, but the thing was, I knew if I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't improve. I mean, I went to a school where there was a lot of musicians and it was a specialist music school and there were people there, just genius child musicians, and they were practicing from eight o'clock in the morning. And that kind of ethic, that work ethic was just there in the school. And um, I think that never really left me. So, yeah, that's something, that is one positive legacy from that experience I would certainly take, take away. Do you still have those sketchbooks? And if so, can we see them? <laughs> um, I don't have them in the studio. No, they're in, they're, a lot of them are in the attic at home. Oh, um, wow. But you still yeah. keep sketchbooks and you still sketch sometimes? Not uh, less like so. Nowadays. Much less, much less. I do a lot of collaging now, um, which I think takes up that time when I would have been drawing. I mean, in a way, it became such a part of my life drawing. I had to kind of stop this sketchbook thing. It became, it got in the way, you know, it just became a means mm. to an end. And I think it actually made me, in a way... Um, I started to stop thinking critically. So I'd kind of honed my, I've been doing my scales, you know, like the musician I was talking about. I've been doing my scales every day, every day, every hour after hour. And I think it's only years and years later when I was more confident in painting that I was able actually to start to compose things through the collaging process um, and actually take a step back and relax and, and let ideas come rather than just worrying about how to draw a shoe or something, and, which of course that, still t- totally engages me now, of course, but yeah. As I, as I understand it, that's how you design your paintings through collage. Yeah. collage. Yes, it's, it's, it's quite an extended uh, process, but sometimes it works very quickly. I just work with a very rubbish version of Photoshop um, and I just cut and paste images from all over from secondhand books I scan, from photographs I've taken, images nicked from the internet, like everyone else, you know, that kind of, we're all sort of archaeologists and putting together these things we find and dig out and put together. And I make a collage, I make a hard copy collage, which I use as my reference. Um, and I just grid up my canvas and work from this collage. 
And then the next day I'll come in, I'll take a piece out of the painting, I'll, I'll change the collage. And the painting becomes a bit of a collage as well with all these various ideas. And um, I, I, I don't, I wish I was more lucid in a way and just be able to make one collage and then use it as my reference and wallop, there's your painting. That does happen occasionally. On the, on the larger pieces, um, it does tend to become a bit more of an extended process because I, I, I just like to change my ideas, you know. And that's when I do feel a bit like a film director when I'm making that work. Um, I come in and it's like, well, today I think I'm just going to... I realised that that whole passage there I, I spent ages all last week doing, I was rather pleased with, is in fact completely ephemeral and uh, is actually uh, rather... Um, distracting so i'll just take it out i'll be quite ruthless and just take it away but then I'm, I'm left with the remnants of something which is really interesting to work over too you know it's all just part of the whole building up a surface and collision of ideas which i really enjoy that whole melting pot you know you do it so beautifully like i've i've photoshop collaged and then painted it and it looks like a photoshop collage somehow yours look like paint right it's like what really what's the secret for me <laughs> yeah if you could advise your younger self when you started this collaging process what would you tell him with all the knowledge, wisdom that you have now well don't panic i suppose yeah <laughs> that's about it yeah just relax and trust yourself that's good advice <laughs> <laughs> So, so Justin, yeah, don't take this as an offensive thing, but I feel like yours never look like, um, uh, they, they never look like Photoshop collages because there's a sense of kind of the nightmarish that you seem to bring to, um, which is, you know, it's not like, I, I feel like it's a strong word, but that's kind of what I've, what I've always thought of. Ton was actually the one that showed me your work years ago, and that was how I got oh. into it. Uh, but but the, there's just kind of nightmare quality that permeates pretty much everything you do and that I specifically <laughs> like all right this is a Justin Mortimer thing like it feels a little yeah. bit like being you know like being in a nightmare but I, I mean it's also extremely beautiful right like um, there's there's not that many people that could but but yeah it doesn't feel as if it, as if it's of this world or of photoshop or of collage it's just your own kind of private you know um private nightmare world and you you let us you know you you let us kind of you make these paintings and you let us invade but um it, like is is that a conscious thing or is this just you know you're compelled to paint what you paint and this is a feeling that you you know and, and maybe that's what the strange perfume is like it's a it's a little bit of that feeling of being you know being in a bad dream that's, you know, could be very beautiful as well. Uh, but it's also, you know, carries a lot of darkness with it. Mm -hmm. Well, to answer the first bit, I mean, about making it not, but it not looking like a collage, Photoshop collage. I mean, I, I spend an awful lot of time thinking about how I'm actually going to paint this. It, I spend an inordinate amount of time, just how am I physically going to construct this? What marks am I going to do? This is why I spend so long making a painting because it's all very well kind of knowing how to paint a shirt cuff or something like that or a tabletop or something. But every time I do it, it's like I'm starting right from scratch. I have to think what brushes, what colour, what weight of colour, how much medium, what touch, how much drag, when do I lift the brush, all that kind of stuff. When do I bring the knife in? All those kind of things. And how does that work in the context of the next shape next to it? How does it work in the context? And it's all about that and how the paint behaves and what it looks like. So it's really important to me, the surface, the, the actual 
physical quality of the paint. It's not about the idea. And whatever nightmare, as you say, emerges, um, that's kind of a byproduct. For me, it's the process and the object, you know, with a little bit of a strange thing going on or whatever, or something that engages me, that's fine on some kind of unconscious level. But I spent, it's all about how I'm making it. And I'm always very interested finding out how other artists make their work. You know, I mean, I was never taught to paint. And this is something that um, I'm really interested in from hearing your other podcasts. What's really emerging is the American system of kind of the atelier system, which, which we don't really have here. You know? and, and the art school, British art education here is, um, some segueing off here, uh, the British art education here is, um, you know, we've, the academic studio-based kind of a teaching, which some art students would, who approach me are absolutely crying out for that knowledge, um, is, is, been, is gone. It just does not exist in British art schools. That's why um, the whole scene in, in Britain is, painting is emerging again, of course, and quite right too, but it's, it's a very, it's very political, it's engaged, um, it's relevant, but it's not um, in the way that, say, uh, a Spaniard would look at painting or um, an Eastern European would look at painting. Artists who have been taught in studio systems and still have a love of the romance of paint. Uh, that doesn't, that, that is less so here. There are some artists who are still really engaged with painting, people like Doig and people like that. Um, but generally it's more about a clever kind of um, political stance often or um, there's something witty and knowing going on in painting. That's fine, but there's that whole atelier system that you guys are very engaged with, which I'm fascinated by, you know? I mean, I, I, I know of no one who, I mean, people are out there doing it, but in art schools, no one's teaching about just how to draw. And people want to know this. People ask, I had a student in the other day, said, how do you make your darks? What black do you use? I said, there's no black in my paintings at all, apart from when I want to make a dead gray. It's all layered oil paint. It's oil paint in layers. And I was interested in listening to, Colleen, one of your guests, talking about how she was looking at, in European painting about how these darks are made. I mean, I make it using transparent reds, blues, and greens, but this artist didn't know that. And this kind of knowledge, you know, I had to discover this myself after I had. I mean, I had to teach myself to paint. Um, I was taught to draw, but I've taught myself to paint. I couldn't paint at art school. It was, it was terrible. It's just hours and hours and hours and hours. You know, I mean, I spoke to um, the German painter Martin Edward at an opening last week, and I said, how, how, Martin, how, how the fuck have you painted that? And he goes, 52 years. He goes, no, no, Picasso said that. But I thought, well, he's been flippant, but I thought, yeah, it's true. It's just the years of it, years of thinking. You know, like, so the atelier system has its problems, um, but we, we did, right. I, I was also, you know, like I grew up without it. You know, I, I didn't realize it was a thing and maybe it didn't become a thing uh, up until, mm. you know, Marshall, like me and you were adults. And I was one of these kids who was kind of crying out, like, I just wanted a system. I wanted someone to like... Right me the tricks and tell me that I've, if I just spent, you know, 10,000 hours doing this, then it would be okay. And um, I kind of watch these ateliers because, you know, one of the few things that people who graduate from ateliers can do is actually start their own atelier because the art world is still, you know, the amount of space that, the, that is allowed for that kind of art in the art world is actually still kind of limited. So I see these ateliers sprouting And up. diminishing, yeah. 
the places to show are diminishing, but the places to learn it are actually probably expanding because, you know, you know, a lot okay. of graduates open up their own, uh, um, the, but apparently none of them made it to the UK. Like I, I know that there's, you know, something in the Netherlands now and something in Paris and it's, uh, it's all over the last few years, but, but apparently London has kind of kept the ateliers out for now. Yeah, I know we're all too, we're too cool for school here. You know, it's all, yeah. I mean, the institutions aren't supporting that, that kind of way of working. Um, yeah. So um, That's just the way it is. Of these institutions aren't really supporting it here either. Um, they just, no. is it like GCA, which is where Colleen is teaching, they, they just decided that they're going to kind of secede from the educational system. Right. You know, like we're just going to form our own thing and, you know, like, and, and run with it no matter what anyone thinks about it. And I, I find that kind of attitude actually kind of admirable, like not trying to make a space in the greater art world, but just creating your own and kind of running with it. Yeah, create your own space, absolutely, yeah. But I was very interested, um, I mean, I talked about being an outsider here. I, I, I never really felt part of anything until I was invited to, to show with painters from Romania, you know, about, probably about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, they'd gone through that whole classical training and, and sort of thrown it away or rejected it or done whatever they want, but that, that kind of bed of knowledge was there. And uh, I was sort of swept along in their kind of tide of, of their, their kind of um, popularity at the time. And they kind of knew there was this weird, dark English person who did these weird paintings. And um, I was able to participate in some of those group shows, and that, that was very exciting. And that part of the whole time when I was with Haunted Venison Gallery and the book You've Got Marshall, it was all that kind of time. And that was because they, they had that, that interest, that base, that training, that education still, you know? mm. um, which is, and like you say, it's not the answer to everything. Did, it did just you... happens to be the one corner of the art world that I inhabit, a very small kind of shadowy one. It, it just resonated with what was coming from the former East, you know, um, did you end up feeling, I mean, I'm assuming you met them all. Did you end up feeling like they're kind of your, your people? Like, like not just the paintings are your kind of paintings, like your painting, um, but did you end up feeling like you belong with them as well? Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know what? Yes. A lot of us became friends, you know, and we, we, it, it was, a, it was always a joy just nipping over to some random town in Hungary or, or, or northern Romania or wherever a show we were all doing was because we only saw each other every few years and it was just, it was just very nice. to That's something that we've all missed, um, and just nipping on a plane and, and being part of a group show in some beautiful East European or northern European town. You know, I, I miss that. That, that, was, that was good fun. That was sort of maintaining kind of an artistic community. It was really great. And do, do you feel like you have kind of your people somewhere, you know, not just painting wise, but like, like what does the rest of your life look like? You obviously paint a lot, but is there a group of people who are, you know, kind of, is it, you know, this is where the Justin Mortimer's of this world belong or is it kind of just you? Um, oh gosh. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I don't, yeah. I, hmm. Interesting. I, mean, I, I left college with a peer group. And we, we meet up. There's that, there's that kind of thing still. But uh, as for other artists, it's a hard one to answer that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I do feel a bit of a uh, kind of a one-man band sometimes. I do. 
Mm. Being an artist is so isolating sometimes. Um, my world is quite small. Uh, and, and yet, in my head, it's very large with the imagination and everything. That's, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty narrow world I inhabit, I would say. Yeah, I no bones oh, about it, that. It's interesting that you were saying your world feels small but your reach is so big. Like you reached me, someone in New York City that was obsessed with your artwork in 2012, you know? It's like, so you're communicating. Yeah, and that's, that's wonderful. I think it's really kind of beautiful. Like that, yes, that, it's been absolutely terrific. I, I had no idea of the impact of my paintings at all. Uh, that just, it, I'm not saying I'm turning the world inside out at all, but you know, people occasionally write to me, which is absolutely amazing. I had, I had one from China this, this morning. And it, it, that's really marvellous. It makes it all really worth it. And meeting people such as yourselves and talking. We haven't met until, thank you to the internet, we are now able to do that. And I mean, leaving art school, we just sent 35 millimeter slides to people and they just promptly put them in the bin. And now, uh, as everyone I'm sure has talked about, Instagram, you know? So that's a way of, that's our broadcasting, you know. Um, my, my website tends to sort of get covered in dust because of the Instagram is, is much more interesting, engaging, and I write to, we write to each other, we DM people, and that, that conversation is very, very important. And, and sustaining, really. I mean, I, I get real sustenance from that, and, and I think uh, it's really important. Um, I mean, there's lots of artists, for instance, all the artists that you've been interviewed, I wouldn't have known about them unless I'd uh, been following them on Instagram or discovered them or some algorithms or threw them up in front of my face. I was like, hey, hang on, this is really fascinating. And so I suppose to answer your question, Dina, it brings me back to maybe my people are out there, or those artists on Instagram that we, we comment on each other's work or, or just going to go, hmm, that's bloody good. I might have to nick that idea, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, maybe, that's, maybe that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a... It's a, it's a community that's not in the same room as me, but it's, it's somewhere else. It, like you say, it could be in New York City. That, that's, that's what's so great about doing shows, you know? You travel to a different country, do a show. Able, but when we were able to visit shows, I mean, when I did a show in LA in about 2012, 2011, I talked to some students from Laguna Beach, and um, we just talked about painting. We might have talked about Velasquez or somebody like I don't know. Conversations and communications where would it happen? Can I float a theory that I'm thinking just mm. off the top of my head? Because I had I, I sort of had a clumsy question earlier about felt spaces. Like if you're painting something, I'm I'm wrestling with this idea of, you know, if it's a model in a room or something, the accuracy of that or whatever is up for debate because the viewer wasn't in that room. So what, what resounds to them is a feeling of memory. That was kind of that clumsy memory question I had. Like you'll feel something off of the light or something that appeals to someone's memory who wasn't there and says like, I felt that way before. And I think what yours do, I was wondering about the spaces because they're, a little improbable. They're out of your head. They're not the most probable spaces that we visited. But to Dina's thing about uh, dreams, I think that yours exist in, in, in a dream state. 
when I respond to your paintings, it's from, it, it feels like it's from dreams, you know? Fascinating. Yeah, maybe dream is another word, another word for maybe a, that, that kind of liminal space, you know, that, that in between, that, that other universe inhabits, that other place and time and space inhabits the universe between our universe. I don't know. I mean, one could get really quantum about this, um, which I'll try very hard not to. <laughs> um, I think it's a word to interstitial, kind of existing between one state and another. Because, yeah, yours are kind of in between the dream or, you know, like the dream or the nightmare and reality. Like there's just enough reality in them to kind of grab onto. Like for our brain, there's okay. just a few elements. Uh, that, but then the rest of it is, and who knows, maybe it's an extension of that version of you who was making up his own universes, you know, with felt markers. Yeah. And this is just what the, the, you know, these are the worlds that the adult you is creating. I think, I think I haven't actually changed since that nine-year-old boy that I was. I think you're in, it's interesting that you picked up on that. I think, uh, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm just doing um, with more knowledge now what I wanted to do when I was that, that old or that young. That, that actually answers my question from earlier. You did, so you became, that was, you became the painter that you wanted to be. The, or you, you yes, I didn't realise it at the time, absolutely. But yes, I think it looks like maybe I have. Maybe, <laughs> which, is, which is funny because I'm always so disappointed by what I do. So, yeah, but that, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning to crack on to the next because I'm, you know, that, that kind of hunger for it, you know. Yes. Can I ask you a question about what you think about depth in an image? Because your, a few of your paintings, the, the larger like flower paintings with yeah. the backgrounds that are, they read a little depth of field in the backgrounds. And they popped into a couple of slideshow lectures I've done about depth in painting. Cause those convey uh -huh. like you have the flower, the shadow, the background that feels a little more abstracted. And Absolutely. it's something about the that layering has a tremendous amount of depth on like that Z axis. We go back into those. Is it, do, do you? What do you think about that? Are you trying to feel that? And when you feel it, do you stop painting it, or is that even something you're conscious of? Just moving back into space so much. No, it's not something I'm conscious of at all. I mean, those those flower paintings um, came out of a very intuitive period of painting that was really great fun, you know, it was, um, I, I, I just threw the paint around on the floor, moved it around, squeegees, things happened. I just let the paint, I let the physicality of the paint, the inherent qualities do what it did. And then um, I would photograph the painting and then build a collage on top of the image of that, uh, which kind of responded to the blobs and scuffs and marks that I'd made, purely often by kind of accidents and the serendipitous mark and all that. Um, I, I, I do try to get a sense of some kind of depth in space. I am interested in that, but not as a subject per se. Uh, and I, I, in fact, I often was worried that some of those paintings got a bit flat because I was really into the whole vivisection, exposed, dying flower, the flash, the exposure, not, uh, the, the, it's pinned out like, like a specimen, this flower for our, for our uh, viewing pleasure. And then the way it was blown up meant I could really get, I was looking at things that were so tiny the tiny filaments of, a, of, a, of a, a stalk blown up so big. And with the flash, which I wanted that synthetic sort of atmosphere to happen, that, that distance, which you talked about earlier on in our talk, 
that kind of distance which happened through the synthesized aspect of the digital, re- all that kind of stuff. It's not a beautiful flower in a vase. It's been presented in a way that's exposing it and it's, and it's vulnerable and it was rather uncomfortable. And I was worried um, that the paintings had become quite flat because I was responding to a purely on an abstract pictorial, um, just shapes, you know, um, the, the interaction of line and great slabs of color and tiny, delicate marks. That was what was feeding, that was the feedback I was taking from the paintings when I was making them. If they happily did make some space, I'm very pleased to hear about that. And certainly on the large paintings, um, I, a friend of mine who's a, who's a very successful scenic artist in the British film industry lent me some of his spray guns uh, for when he's painting his massive backdrops and stuff. Uh, the, the use, by, by hosing some of this paint on and getting this dissolved, soft blooms of paint mm. created that kind of optical effect that I suppose did lend itself to a certain photographic depth that we're used to, that kind of vernacular that we're used to reading. Um, so you get a blurry space. You think, oh, that's a shadow and it's blurry because it's, it's receding in space or something like that. And other times I would cut the line across the abstract blobs that, that um, broke the illusion, you know. There's that sort of give and take. Yeah, that give and take about the plasticity of the paint and the illusion that I'm kind of playing with as well. Let's face it, as a figurative painter, you're kind of dealing with illusion making as well. Yeah. And the places where you break it is almost as important as the... Yeah, I love the way you play with it. Absolutely. And, and, and so you're squeegeeing some of those backgrounds as well, some of the... Oh, yeah, totally. I was using squeegees, I was using um, just rags and, and great big knives and, yeah, all that kind of thing. Yeah, totally, totally. You sound like after kind of however many years doing it, <clears throat> painting is still... It, it sounds like you still love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm so pleased to hear that. That's really nice because, yeah, it's a, it's a bastard most days. And by the <laughs> half... We'll, will laugh at that because, you know, she, she, she'd made me all these painting aprons with, with what I'd come home and with Richard, she'd applique all these things on my painting apron with my favorite expressions. I'd come back home and the door would slam. She said, how was it today? I said, ah, oh, fucking scraped it all off or I don't know what to do next or whatever. And yeah, so, so to be told that I still love it is, um, it, to be reminded that I still love it is, is terrific. It's really nice because it's, it's it's the graph, but it's the drug, you know. We're, I mean, the, I am that junkie tracing that kind of that hit, you know, which which obviously diminishes the the more you work, the further it goes. As I said, but um, yeah, truly exclusive, right? Like you could feel like everything you did for the day is crap, and you got to scrape it off. But it's still that mm. you would like to do more than any other thing that you could do for you know eight to twelve hours a day. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Life's choices. I mean, I sometimes I think, is this is this it now? Is this me? You know. Obviously, I've decided to be an artist many years ago, but is this, is this my life now? Am I just going to keep banging away on the, these bloody paintings? Um, I suppose, well, I guess it is. I, basically, I just don't go there in my head. I just crack on with it. Yeah, I try not to worry too much about it. Um, it's just really marvellous that um, anyone actually gives a shit about what I do. That is just fantastic that some people are interested and want to engage in it. Um, and for that, I thank you for that as well. And that, that really does make it worthwhile. Um, if it annoys people, that kind of stuff, that's all fine. Um, yeah, I mean, every artist I know gets annoyed 
by other shows and other artists' work and stuff. And that's all part of it, you know. It's like, it's like if I was in a band, I'd hate the other band or, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. It's um, that kind of rivalry, that, that, that stuff, the, the, the jostling. Um, yeah, it's all, that's all part of the game. Yeah. And, and I think that just means it's important to us. Like, if it all just sort of registered as it's fine, it wouldn't mean much to, to us. <laughs> no, God damn, yes, save us from that. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. I like that. Wait, what, what are those moments when you come in and slam the door in the studio that, that, that make you feel that way? Like, what is it something technical you're wrestling with or something? What, what's the hardest part out there for you? Um. The hardest part for me is probably, um, well, composition is something I think an awful lot about, and I balls it up so many times. I overthink things. Um, I also, technical things I'm really interested in. I'm not saying so much in, in materials, but just how to render and how to... Yeah. I did a whole series of still lives where I was painting just the cellophane wrappers from around a packet of cigarettes or a packet of tea or something like that. Just this square cellophane. How am I going to paint something as simple and as elegant and beautiful as that. So I had to work that out. Or um, how am I going to work, how am I going to paint a surface that describes actually the volume underneath the surface or inside that volume, say like a balloon? Um, you know, no one's telling me how to, how to do this. There's no book I'm referring to. There's no A, a to Z of how to do this. One has to do it oneself. So you do it on the canvas and you kind of get feedback from every little you get closer towards your goal, then you have to move back. You get feedback about how to, how to create this illusion or whatever you're trying to paint. And things like that I can get in a muddle with. Um, that you, and just, you know, you wipe it off and all the paint's gone rubbish. And there's no, there's no um, back button once you apply the paint to the canvas. It's, that's kind of it. So, yeah, technical issues I think about quite a lot. I think about colour a lot. Um, I think about the content. Um, you know, so it's that whole... It's the whole smalls ball, really. Yeah. Uh, and also just not worry too much about what the art world seems to be doing as well. I am, um, you know, I've been showing work for years, you know, successfully some years and others. And, and the art world does its own thing. And I occasionally show there and the art world's there. And, um, and I've accepted that's kind of the way it's going to be. And it's really good that that's, that's been great. Um, I'm really happy that uh, to be able to make this work and continue to be able to do that. It's a very lucky place to be. We're all here just as Justin Mortimer uh, has finished a new body of work. I've said that in the in the very beginning of the podcast, but um, I see some of it in the background and it's stunning. Um, uh, would you like to talk about it a little bit? Yeah, well, it's so very new. I mean, it's a, it's a group show that's happening in Milan next year and uh, the, the original brief was five large paintings, five small ones. So I made, I, I, that's what I made. And I think maybe the brief, the, the show has probably changed a little bit since then. Um, some of these paintings will go, to, will go to Milan, maybe one or two may go, may go elsewhere. Uh, but I, the paintings emerged throughout sort of lockdown time um, when I first moved back to my studio, having been painting small paintings in my spare room at home because we weren't allowed to travel. I wasn't allowed to travel to my studio. My studio is about a 30-mile, 40-minute uh, underground tube journey from my home. Uh, so I couldn't really commute across London during two lockdowns we had here, at least whatever we had. I don't know. So I just put everything in the boot of my car just, and worked in the spare room at home and made very small 
paintings with a broken hand for a show in Korea. But anyway, that's another story. But um, so now I was able to make the large works. And I think there's, there's something going on. There's people in a room. The series is called Kammer, which is like a German room for like a chamber or a room. And uh, I don't know quite what's going, but, but there's some kind of, there's a figure on a bed in a room who may or may not be in a hospital type situation with maybe walls that are showing landscapes. So it's like the landscape's existing. Some external world is existing in this very small domestic space. So landscape has become like some projection. Is it an AI projection? I've been thinking about um, plasma screens for a lot, for, for years now. So I, have, so I have an abstract language emerging from broken plasma screens and I have um, a kind of a dream cast landscape. I don't know that's happening in the background of these paintings. And the figure is somehow trying to interact this space, but somehow is trapped maybe by just the pictorial space. It's quite, it's not a lot of depth. I'm playing with the illusion of depth, but then suddenly a figure in the painting will be casting a shadow onto that landscape. So, so suddenly it isn't a receding space. So I'm playing around with that at the moment. Some kind of um, interrupted interaction, the world. Yeah. Sort of in, in and out of, of space, like it's disassociated, but it's yet, it might be grounded with a shadow at times. Like it's sort of yeah. trippy. Yes. There's some, well, being me, obviously it's going to be some troubling aspect, but yes, there's some, there's a lack of interaction with the figure and the room that she's inhabiting. Um, and, may, and there's, maybe she's ill or there's some, there's a diseased foot or maybe not, I don't know, but. And there's the accoutrements of a, of a stay in the room on the table next to her. And, and maybe the background is just a projection from an AI system she has on her computer. There's all these kind of things I'm playing around. So it, it, got, it got quite complex. I'm not going to, I'll stop talking about it now, but that's kind of where I was starting from. What do you feel like when you finish a body of work? Oh, kind of a bit anxious and nervous because I know I walk in tomorrow and go, right. I'll go, ah, damn, what have I been doing? Look at that. And I'll suddenly see, you know, I'll have painted a cloud and it looks like Noddy in the background or something. You know, it's something I hadn't seen or blind to. Um, so, yeah, it, it's good. I've got to invent something now. Uh, tomorrow, I will, well, I have Peter, my photographer, is coming in to document the work. And I will sit down and I will throw things together on the screen and collage stuff together and just look for interesting sort of visual crunches, something, or I look at lots of old documents that I've made in the past um, my, through my archive and just see abandoned ideas and little, little, little remnants of something and think, well, that was kind of a bit bollocks then, but there's something going on there which I can extrapolate and use with another technique I've been thinking about or whatever. And I might... I'll probably start, well, I should really start on some modest scale stuff as well, just to get a, just to sort of get loose again, you know, fit, get a bit flexing, see what's going on, some small work before I commit myself to large canvases. Because I do have a propensity to get bogged down in the large stuff. And uh, small is very helpful, you know, human scale painting. It's a, a, a piece of surface that you can hold and physically control the large stuff, when it gets a bit too cinematic, is it's very hard to successfully choreograph it, should we say. 
Sorry, Marshall, you had a question that I interrupted you from, from asking. Oh, yes. I was, so it seems like as your paintings develop, they're almost, there's room for mystery within yourself as well. Like you, uh-huh. you're sort of wondering if, like you were saying, the, the foot is, is diseased or something and they'll just, so d- is it a process of them kind of revealing themselves and even mysterious as you go? Yeah, I think that's probably it. It does kind of reveal itself through the process of making a painting, if that's kind of what you meant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not one for really nailing the idea and then just copying a collage. It's, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a starting point, you know? It's just a trigger. And invariably whatever the trigger is, that's great. That gets the surface active and things happen. But then I will start to hone things down and edit things and realize actually the whole point of this picture wasn't that massive area of bright pink I was so in love with. It's actually the tension between that tiny thing in the corner and that shape in the top left. It's that kind of thing, things you don't actually know. And it, often it's your unconscious is so much more, be- so much better informed than your conscious mind about why you're interested in something visually. And so I can spend ages... Um, barking up the wrong tree and it only takes only through the process of engaging with the painting for maybe several several weeks to actually find out actually what is it that's here that's worth making and commenting on and and, yeah so it's kind of editing really it's kind of what i do is it almost like a conversation that you're having with each painting? Like you're trying to tell it something by painting and it's talking back. And <laughs> yeah, I'm, trying to, I'm sort of whipping it into shape and the bloody thing keeps punching me in the face, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of dialogue. Yeah. Um, there's probably a lot of people asking you for advice. Um, and for all of the kind of, you know, for all of the painters uh, asking you specifically for kind of, you know, j- just, just life advice, painting advice, what would you tell them? Uh, yeah, well, um, trust in yourself, I think. Uh, listen to your friends, you know, but be yourself and just be prepared to um, work really hard because you're not born a great painter or anything. You, you have to work at it. If it. It doesn't come easy. So just find a place that you enjoy and go for it. Um, and don't be worried about fashions and what people think. Just find your place, you know, and, and work at it. That's kind of, it's fairly simple. Yeah. Uh, um, thank you so much, by the way. Thank you so much for doing this. Like, uh, and just for taking the time, pleasure. For, you know, for finishing, for finishing a body of work and then spending the rest of that day talking, you know, <laughs> to talking to, to three strangers in the U.S. It's been great. Total pleasure. And and I want to say, uh, yeah, obviously, thank you for coming on and sharing, you know, a part of yourself and your process with us. But also, thank you for making work that really communicates to people like me. Like, you Marshall, know, thank you. That's very good really to say. Very welcome. It's um, it's extraordinary to think that what I'm doing in here is that that, that people seem to be interested in that, and I, I like that. That's that's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, so honestly, your art when when I first saw it, your paintings, they were fascinating, but they they, they scared me. I, I've actually yeah. had this conversation with probably both Marshall and Tan about this. They were completely, you know, um, blown away by your work. I was blown away by it, and not necessarily like 
basically that nightmarish feeling. Like I would think about your paintings for ages after, you know, like the, like even after, after Tan showed me, I think it was easy, either a catalog or a book before I even saw them in uh-huh. person. Um, so you're, you're actually a much more, um, okay. You're not nearly as intimidating of a person as I thought that you would be just looking at your work. Like everything I said about your paintings being nightmarish, I'm just, I, you know, I should have come up with a better word. Um, well, it's, um, it's a bit, yeah. I mean, it's like, would you describe David Lynch's films as nightmarish? I'm, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a sort of a nuance, there's a more nuance there, isn't there? And I think it, that's probably a sensibility I'm, Closer to hordes, perhaps. Maybe there's a great German word that I don't know, but <laughs> we are because Germans apparently have um, have a word for everything, including uh, the thing that's always resonated with me: that that feeling of you know seeing a boarded up building um, and wanting to see what's behind boarded up windows. There's a there's one word in German for that. Yes. Um, yes. And, um, well, I hope I, someone writes into you and tells you what it is. Yeah. <laughs> if I yeah. that word, but, um, uh, and I'll uh, use it for title for one of my next paintings. That's yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so oh. honestly, your paintings I actually have always reminded me of that too. That feeling of wanting to see what's what's behind the boarded, you know, the locked door, and being a little bit scared, but you know, mm. like scared mm. and curious to see what's what's there. Mm, terrific. Well, that's a great compliment. I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it as a compliment. But yes. Yeah. I mean, people do write to me and say, look, for fuck's sake, Justin, just paint a happy painting. I'm not... Um, How am I going to... Yes. I, even if I painted someone smiling, a beautiful smile, they would, I'd, I'd ruin it somehow, wouldn't I? I, I know I would. Uh, even with a, a painting of a girl in a pretty dress on a summer meadow, it's going to be dark and weird, isn't it? And, and, and that's fine, you know? That's okay. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your painting of a of a girl on a sunny day with a meadow would would probably be unsettling, and you know, maybe give people bad dreams too. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm thinking about what to do tomorrow now. Maybe I'll start on this vein. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. I actually I feel like we can't any of us change the way we paint. We we just like we we paint the ways that we're able. And the ways that, you know, and, and we can work at it to become kind of more of what we are. But you're right, maybe we don't change. Maybe we stay as a kid, you know, like like we stay as an eight-year-old. We can just, you know, trying to build a universe and we can just kind of execute yeah. that better. So. Quite possibly, yes. We just learned a few more big grown-up words, how to describe it, haven't we? Oh. <laughs> well, that German yeah. word that we can't actually think of. <laughs> yes, that one. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Art Grind podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind and we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.